road for tonight I got the feeling that something ain't right And the media is lying on the air And I'm wondering how to get y'all to care And TV to the left of me, Neocon to the right Here I am stuck in the middle of you Yes, I'm stuck in the middle of you Hello, everybody, and welcome to the third episode of Stuck in the Middle. It's been a little while since we recorded. The holidays and other commitments have gotten in the way. I hope you all had a Merry Christmas and hope you're looking forward to the new year here. The first couple of episodes, we focused on handicapping the, the 2020 race, looking at the different candidates on the Democratic side and, and talking about what that might look like. But for this episode, I've got a little bit of a different take. I'm joined in studio by Heath Mayo. Um, Heath and I have known each other for a while. Let him give a bit of a background about himself here in a second. But Heath and I met in the United States Senate in 2011, I think, um, working for John Cornyn. We were both interning on the Hill there, and we kind of, our paths crossed, and actually found out that we had a mutual friend, um, you know, back from, back from down in the DFW area. So, Heath, I'm really glad that you're with us today to talk about the Principles First movement. And before we get into to that, can you give the, the listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, um, thanks for having me, Blake. This is a great um, podcast that you've started up and, and good conversations that, that, you're, that you're facilitating here. And I'm, I'm honored to, to be asked to be here. Um, so just, a, just a little bit of background about me. Um, born and raised in um, East Texas, um, grew up in White House, and then went went off to college, um, played baseball up at Brown, um, did law school, and have for about five years been a management consultant. Um, in in I'm based in Boston, but travel travel quite a bit. But but focus on businesses, focus on um, creating value at businesses, and helping them reduce costs or grow the top line. So that's where my that's where my professional experience is. But politically, I'll I have sort of always been pretty active, uh, and my passion is really at the grassroots. Um, what really energizes me about politics is. One on one conversations, face to face conversations, particularly in an, in a moment where uh, I think those kinds of face to face interactions get lost in sort of this, um, you know, minimalization of our politics to the bite sized tweets or Facebook posts or something that can go viral on the internet. Sure, um, I think those kinds of substantive conversations that you have in a face to face meeting really have gotten lost. So that is that is where my passion has been. I you know, I'm conservative, I'm a Republican, uh, still a Republican, I, although it's 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 becoming harder and harder to know what it, either of those words really mean. Uh, and I think the, the 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 purpose of principles first has been to to sort of figure out what that means, figure out what those words mean and how as principled conservatives we can really engage in the current political moment um, productively. So the talk of a little bit more about principles first. You did found that organization as I understand it is now a formal organization. That's right. So what um, why did you form it? What is what is the goal of that organization? Where do you see it going from here? Sure. Yeah. So uh, principles first really started um, sort of as an accident, <laughs> honestly. I mean, I, I was, it was about a year ago around the time of CPAC, so late February, early March. And CPAC, for the listeners who, who, who may not be familiar with it, is the Conservative Political Action Conference. It's basically a, an annual um, get-together of uh, 
every talking head, every pundit. Sort of, yeah, you know, pundit and and activist. It used to be it's used to be sort of a mecca for conservative grassroots. Um, politicians activists. actually speak there yeah, as well po- regularly. Po- politicians speak there, but over the years, recent years, it has sort of turned into a, I call it a grift fest. <laughs> where by people, the way, Josh is joining us as well. <laughs> yeah, so I, I forgot to make that introduction, but Josh is joining us for the episode, and um, <laughs> and we'll be calling on him to to provide his thoughts throughout this as well. Yeah, and, and so, um, but 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 anyways, the the, the CPAC um, thing has sort of morphed in recent years to this sort of grift. Uh, grift event where, you know, I call it conservative ink, um, folks who have sort of used the conservative movement as a career to sort of, um, you know, manufacture sort of, um, antagonistic and, and, um, you know, they'll, they'll go onto campus and they'll film themselves just kind of hammering this unsuspected college student uh, sure, right, to make go it go viral. viral. Yeah. Make it go viral own the libs, this whole thing. And, and, and the conversation that happens there really isn't this substantive debate about what it means to be a conservative. It's just, Hey, let's get all get together and, and, you know, talk about how awful the left is, which, you know, I get it. Politics is a zero sum game and none of us, you know, you know, have our disagreements with the left, but for me, that's just not a very productive exercise. And so principles first, getting back to the answer started as sort of a response to that degradation of CPAC. And I was going to be in DC and I said, you know what, does anybody want to just meet up over drinks and let's talk about what it means to be a conservative? Well, this caught the attention of a lot of folks in DC. It caught the attention of Matt Schlapp, who is the director of CPAC. He actually attacked us. Publicly. Yeah, publicly attacked us. And so we got a little buzz from that and folks were actually interested in the conversations that we were starting. You know, we had a in in a week's time from the time I initially came up with that idea, we had about a thousand people across the country sign up. We ended up hosting thirty, or yeah, it would have been fifteen different gatherings in fifteen different cities across the country during during the time that CPAC was meeting, having conversations, and really the the the, the thrust of the gathering, the question that we were asking ourselves is, what does it mean to be a principled conservative? What sure. does what does the word conservative mean? What what are the ideas that motivate the conservative worldview now today? Because as we look at our politics, I don't really see it, right? I see a lot of Republicans cheering for the president, cheering for Senate and congressional Republicans, but they're the things that they're cheering for, they're cheering for a $23 trillion national debt and a $1 trillion annual deficit. They're cheering for unilateral executive orders without the consent of Congress to move funds around that Congress has appropriated for other things. And, and those are things, look, if, if Barack Obama had did that, he did sort of do, do that. <laughs> you know, we can have debates about the legality of it, but with DACA and DAPA, same thing. Conservatives were outraged over the fact that President Obama didn't go to Congress to get approval. So there's been... It wasn't, been, wasn't the response to Obama, we will put somebody in office who doesn't utilize executive exactly. orders. Exactly. And that... And that and that, for a long while, was the conservative answer. Look, we're principled. These are neutral principles. We don't really care. You know, it's about, you don't care if you agree or disagree. These neutral principles apply to us and you. And that's sort of what attracted me to conservative. That's sort of what makes me a conservative, right? Is because I feel like it. it's a set of rules that apply to everyone, regardless of if we agree. 
that has not been how the Republican Party has conducted itself um, over the last two or three years. So, you know, mentioning, you mentioned how the Republican Party has acted over the last couple of years. Really, they've championed the president. Uh, they've really rallied in his corner. In the primary back in 2015, 2016, when he was running for president, there was a lot of hesitation in the Republican Party. I mean, people like Lindsey Graham and others, Marco Rubio, who are now his biggest champions were some of his largest critics back in the day. So what do you think has caused these politicians to morph into somebody that has abandoned their principles and now just champions a person? You know, I, I think it's just survival. You know, I think part of it is these guys, they get to Washington and they kind of like it, right? They kind of, they kind of like the right. trappings of, of high office and pretty soon they sort of forget why it was they ran in the first place. And, and, and to some extent, that's a little understandable, right? I mean, as a representative of the people in a representative government, there is this sort of pressure to listen to the people. But a question is, are you listening to the people that elected you or are you listening to someone else that the people elected and who is leading and who is following? Sure. And what role do you play in sort of driving the discourse and shaping the discourse and to whom do you owe allegiance? Right. And I think that can get muddled. And I think it's, you know, as, as the politics change, as the, as the grounds shift beneath people's feet, I think they sort of start to try to look for safe ground and for better or for worse, I think that's what um, current Republicans have done because I think you've seen a lot of their ideas change over the last two or three years with Trump's ascendance uh, in popularity. So, what we've seen in Washington, D.C. right now is um, a lot of attention to the impeachment fight. Um, you know, uh, it seems for a while that Nancy Pelosi was resistant to pursuing an impeachment battle when some of the far left or fringe Democrats were, you know, in favor of that from the very beginning. Um, to me, you know, observing it looks like Nancy Pelosi was understanding that impeachment has its consequences and there are, um, you know, uh, there are maybe other battles to have, but she sort of came down in favor of impeachment after the Ukraine situation. Uh, from I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you sort of favored impeachment before that. What was the tipping point for you as a Republican, as a conservative, or really just as a citizen to say, okay, Donald Trump needs to be removed from office and he's unfit to serve? Right. Um, so that that is true. I, I, I was... I was sort of hoping that the House would at least open up an impeachment inquiry and look at the question of impeachment after the Mueller report came out. I think that there were a number of factual instances that Mueller uncovered uh, with respect to uh, obstruction of justice. Not so much collusion. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of bad facts on, right. on, the, collu on the collusion front, but with respect to obstruction... Um, the, the one instance in particular, there were, there were, I think there were seven or eight instances that Mueller had identified as potentially satisfying the elements of obstruct, obstruction of justice. The one that seemed most close, closest to fulfilling all the elements to me, and it appeared to from the facts that Mueller laid out, was when Trump instructed McGahn to lie to the special counsel. His, his attorney, he, you know... The White he, House he counsel. Made, yeah, the White House counsel. He had made an instruction to the White House counsel to either lie or not be forthcoming uh, with when he sat for an interview with the special special counsel Mueller. What and was his response though? What was the guy he instructed to lie's response? His 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 response we don't well, we don't know. We, I, mean, so I think we haven't talked to talked to Magan, so we don't know the full we don't know the full answer, but I feel like he just said, "No, I'm not going to do that." Right. I can't 
I can't so do it. You're a lawyer, or um, you know, have by a training small background. <laughs> um, is it still obstruction if he asks someone to do something that's obstructive, but they refuse? I think so. I mean, I think I, I think the attempt to obstruct justice is itself sort of the the, the harm, right? I mean, I, if if you if you're bad at obstructing justice, or you tell <laughs> yeah. or you tell someone who just can't do it, yeah. I and mean, the, the, the you principle know. holds up. Attempted murder right. is still a crime. It might not be murder, but it's still a crime. And, right. So. Exactly. And and particularly when we're talking about the president of the United States and guarding constitutional norms, you know, whether whether the people who he was instructing to commit the impeachable offense, you know, whether they were actually good enough to do it or carry it out or whether they had this, had the nerve to carry it through shouldn't really be the, the basis of a determination of Congress of whether or not the constitution has been breached. And so that's why, that's why I had even early on been sort of hoping that the, the house would take on this impeachment question. And since all of the, you know, following on facts in the Ukraine call and this whole Ukraine affair, I think the evidence is overwhelming that at the very least that, that this should, this, this merits a Senate trial, because for me, the question of impeachment comes down to what did it mean when the framers put the impeachment clause in the constitution? And when the framers, you, you can go back and read the debates in the Federalist papers and, and even the, the George Mason and, and um, James Madison talked about, what it meant to impeach a president. And fundamentally, I think they believed that what they were protecting against was an enterprising executive, someone who was going to go into the office and then pull the levers of power for their own private gain in contravention of the public trust. So selling out the public trust to help the personal interests of the president was something that I think they meant when they put the impeachment clause in place. And I think that's exactly what Trump has done here not only obstructing justice in the first instance, but then also abusing the power of his office by withholding federally appropriated funds to Ukraine uh, in exchange for some announcement against uh, Joe Biden, who was going to be his central uh, political opponent in the next election. So uh, I was about to bring up the Ukraine situation. So the Mueller report obviously didn't uh, didn't have enough support in Congress. Um, there wasn't enough appetite, even among Nancy Pelosi. She, you know, even after seeing that, she didn't um, decide to bring impeachment articles forward or or start an impeachment investigation. What do you think was her hesitation in that? Yeah, I mean, I think. Look, I think. Nancy Pelosi is a political animal. Uh, was she strategizing about the election? I think she was strategizing about the election. I, you know, I, I don't think, you know, I think Democrats are just as political as Republicans. And and while while we can read principle into their into their arguments all we want, I, you know, I do think that there was a sort of a scheming element to this. Is it going to hurt our chances in twenty twenty? Is it going? Is it not? Which is sort of the benefit of being a disillusioned or Republican in this moment, right? Sure. It doesn't help me. Doesn't help any of us to call for the impeachment of the president or not. We just kind of look at the facts and say, "You're calling balls and strikes." Yeah, you're calling balls and strikes. And does this does this rise to the level of an impeachable offense? If it does, then I think that we should impeach, regardless of if it's going to help Trump or not in the in the election. So I think there was a little bit of gamesmanship going on after the Mueller report of. Should we or should we not? Um, that do you that feel we, like kind of a, it might be a waste of time though, since the Senate has no. no it seems like they have no intention of of actually looking at this um, as you know an unbiased juror. Right. Um, they're just gonna. Uh, I mean, 
to the point that McConnell's already come out and said he's, you know, he's right. supporting the president no matter what. I so. think it. I think it does have value, even though I 100. percent I mean, I I doubt there's any chance. You know, there may be an iota of chance. <laughs> that I think the Senate, it's very slim. Senate convicts, but it's very slim. It's highly unlikely. But I do think that there's still value in the fact that the House is impeached, and this is why. I think impeachment, they're two different constitutional acts, and it's, and it's a good reason why the, the founders, the framers of the Constitution separated them. The House impeaches, which is akin to an indictment and a federal criminal trial, a, a, you know, a grand jury basically saying this is something we ought to have a trial over. And then the Senate runs the trial and examines the evidence and determines whether or not the burden of proof has been met with respect to if you have actually committed that offense. So the value that you get out of a House actually impeaching the president for the set of facts and the conduct alleged here is that you actually have a precedent that says this is something that is in the impeachable realm. This is something that we're not going to tolerate. This is something outside of the bounds of the presidency. If you can prove these sets of facts and we have reason to believe that they might be proven, this is something that the president just can't do. This is outside constitutional bounds. If the House had not done that, then future presidents would have said, oh, this is, this, is, this is a green light. I can kind of march through this door without concern for, you know, an impeachment article being brought against me because this has happened in the past and no one did anything, so I'm okay. Do you think that uh, this strengthens his chance of re-election? And if it does strengthen his chance of re-election, does it, does it um, negate any benefit that you just mentioned? So, so even if it strengthens his chance of being re-elected, is it something the House should have still pursued? So I think, yes, the answer to, is to that. I, I, just as a principled matter, I think, yes, they should have pursued it no matter if they, if someone, if a, if a crystal ball reader had said, if you impeach the president, he will be reelected. I think as just a constitutional rule of law matter, they should have, they're, they, they're duty bound to do it anyways. Do you think it's, it does increase his chance of being reelected? Does it embolden him? It probably does, right? I mean, this guy, this is a guy that is emboldened by pretty much everything, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing you could do. I mean, if you hadn't, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good question, right? I mean, if they hadn't impeached, he would have had fodder to say it was all a hoax, right? It's, it's hard to know how things cut, right. you know, either pro or con against this president. That's why I think... You stand by your principles. You stand by your principles. You fight for your principles. You defend the actions pursuant to those principles, and the chips will fall where they may. So, um, when you look at, when you take stock of the Trump presidency, you know, you've talked about some of the things that you see that are troubling and you, you obviously have come out in favor of impeachment, but are there policy accomplishments or, uh, sort of achievements that you would recognize and, and, and give him credit for? Look, absolutely. I, I think impeachment is a completely separate, separate thing. I like to, I mean, you could be the most rock ribbed conservative that, has never voted for a Democrat in your life and still look at the facts here and say, that's an impeachable offense. Absolutely. And I do want yeah. to keep them separate. So that, that, that's pardoned off. And so now let's think, you know, Trump has never done any of that. It's hard to say that, but let's just say Trump is president. Let's look at his policies. I think there are maybe one or two things, you know, there's a couple of things that sure president, he gets credit for. I actually 
as an originalist, as I, you know, I was involved in FedSoc in law school, I agree with the jurisprudence of a lot of the judges that he has appointed. Sure. He's appointed a lot of judges, and he, those judges would have been appointed by Ted Cruz, by Marco Rubio, the same slate of judges, pretty much. They were basically picked from a list, list. given to him by the Federal Society, Federalist it, Society. That is, that is correct. And so it's hard to object to that as a conservative, right? I mean, I got to, you give him credit for that just for listening to the right people, right? I mean, I don't think that there was anything. people that Trump chose. Right. But, but exactly. And so there's nothing really unique about Trump that made that a sort of a, something that no other conservative would have been able to do. Okay. So that's one, I think, good job. We've got a lot of great judges on the court in my, in my view. The second one, which is increasingly being it's in question as to whether or not it was actually effective was the tax cuts. Sure. I think conservatives generally believe in lower taxes if it's done correctly. And I say, if it's done correctly, uh, in, 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 sort of in all caps, because I think that we're learning that, you know, what does it mean to be a fiscal conservative? Does it, some people would say it just means to lower taxes, um, have lower taxes, have lower income coming into the government, so the government just can't spend more money. The problem is the government's the government going to spend. Is gone. <laughs> I think we're learning that even if it's a Republican or a Democrat, those politicians are going to spend the money. Yeah. <laughs> Whether they have judging it. by the, the most recent spending bill we saw. <laughs> exactly. That's the biggest problem for me is just how incredibly unconservative Republicans have been. Right. You know, we don't have we don't have you know eight years of a Democrat spending you know, crazy. And then a Republican coming in and chopping spending both sides just right. been like it's, it's, and it, and it would be nice. And I don't see that changing yeah. right now. Right. And it would be nice if you had two parties in the country that at least played that divide, right? right. That, that you had a conservative austere party sure. that was willing to manage public deficits and public budgets responsibly. And another one who was willing to spend and invest and use the public coffers to sort of spur, economic growth if that's what you think that the government can do but we don't have we, we have two parties that do that they just do it on different priorities right um and so so the tax cuts really uh the 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 studies and the and the you know pieces that are being published on the effects of the tax cuts really shown that it didn't have much effect on the economy and it actually just blew up the debt even further i think i think that you know i there's there's a couple of studies that would that would maybe argue differently but i the the problem that i have with the tax cuts is that they weren't broad based they they were sort of top heavy not a lot of it went to the middle class and you're right it they didn't pay for themselves right. i would like to see a tax i mean look if you can show me a tax cut that will pay for itself let's cut the tax i mean i think as a conservative i would say let's cut the taxes the problem is just paying for itself isn't enough right now because we're $23 trillion in the hole. But wasn't the argument at the time, you know, even Paul Ryan made the argument that the engine of economic growth will fill the federal coffers because unemployment will go down, uh, people will be back to work, and they'll be paying federal taxes, mm-hmm. which will then increase the federal coffers. But that hasn't happened. Well, it, 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 which it's interesting because it actually sort of has happened. I mean, this is sort of the best spending is yeah, as outpaced it. outpaced it. So, you know, like this is the best world for. Uh, I mean, I don't even think the off you know OMB or the budget office CBO whoever projected that out would have thought that the recovery and expansion would have lasted this long or been this powerful. I mean, this is one of the, the strongest biggest, economies. strongest economies that we've had. And the tax cuts still didn't pay for themselves, right? right? So I, th- that really undercuts 
any kind of argument that these were sort of fiscally conservative. Now, now you might say, well, it, they were stimulative. Well, that's the same argument that Democrats make for spending spending a lot of money on on uh, government programs. They say, well, it, it'll stimulate investment. So, the, the stimulus argument isn't really conservative to me because I, I feel like we ought to be creating the rules and laying the groundwork for economic growth, not not relying on the government to sort of inject liquidity and inject, and inject um, stimulus to make it happen. So on the on the topic of federal deficits and and you know high spending, if you were in the in in a position to make decisions or had the levers of power in front of you, where do you actually see that cuts could be made that would substantially impact where we're at right now? Yeah. I mean, I, so I I have not looked at the federal budget in a a while, but I do know, I, I, I would just say this. I think someone, I think there's an opportunity at least. I think fundamentally and intuitively the American, uh, people understand that we're in a, in a fix, right? Like the federal budget is not healthy. And we're going to have to make some tough choices, particularly when we hit the next recession, because we sort of spent ourselves through the recovery. Right. And now we have no room to maneuver when we hit the next recession, because it's coming. I mean, recessions, we're not going to be in recovery forever. We're going to hit a recession. It's cyclical. It's sure. a cyclical economy. But now, then what are you going to do? You can't, you know, we're 23 trillion in debt. De- debt to GDP is 115%. Right? Interest rates are already low. Interest rate, you can't, the, the Fed can't do anything with interest rates. Where, where is the, you know, taxes are low. You know, where is the breathing room for someone to come in and fix things? I think we're going to be in a really tight spot whenever, whenever we hit the next recession because it's going to be tough for us to come in and borrow more money to bail out you know, the auto whoever we're going to bail out, right? We, I, don't, I think we've kind of, you know, are, we're running out of bullets in terms of what we're going to be able to do. So I, I'm really worried about that. That's why, you know, principles first. That's why we talk a lot about fiscal conservatism and calling out the hypocrisy and heresies of the current Republican Party when it comes to really getting a fiscal house in order so that we're prepared for the next downturn, particularly while we're going through an economic expansion right now. I am fascinated by the the dialogue among Republicans when Democrats are in power uh, because it's, you know, the debt is is going to suffocate our children and our grandchildren. We have to get this under control. Our economy can't sustain that. But then you see Republicans voting for some of the largest spending bills in history because maybe it they got to include a priority that was important to them. And yeah. if that was included, if that pork barrel project was included for them, then by default, they're okay with it. You do see some conservatives come out, uh, you know, opposing it, um, maybe to the disdain of the, of the president. But, you know, it's interesting because when the, when the levers of power switch and the Republican becomes in part in power, that discussion ev- evaporates completely and you don't see it happen at all. Right. And, and I think, look, to the Republicans' detriment, right? Because suppose that we wake up next year and it's, you know, Elizabeth Warren as president and she announces, you know, Medicare for all or a huge federal, uh, you know, a huge new federal program that costs trillions and trillions of dollars. The first thing that Republicans are going to want to say is, we can't afford it. We're in debt. How are you going to spend us into oblivion? And Democrats ought to just look at Republicans and say, yeah, no, zero credibility. Where were you guys when Trump was president? We're going to have no credibility to make those arguments. 
And so I, I don't know what Republicans are going to do. They're just going to say, oh, They're probably no. going to revert back to their old arguments. Yeah, they, they'll revert back to their old arguments, and we'll see how, you know, how receptive people are to that. I just don't think that, I mean, I, I'd, I'd laugh them out of the room, <laughs> most, most <laughs> right. of these folks, if, if I heard that argument. So we've touched a bit about what Principles First is. Um, after this, uh, Heath, I'd like to talk to you about where does the conservative movement go from here and uh, what happens if Donald Trump wins and what happens if he loses and how we kind of see things playing out, you know, in both of those scenarios. Here for a second segment of the Stuck in the Middle episode three. Here, Heath, um, a little bit ago we talked about you know the formation of the Principles First organization, and uh, I want to ask you, um, you know, where do you see the conservative movement going from here? And I'll give you two scenarios. So, what happens to the conservative movement if perhaps Donald Trump wins the re- you know wins re-election in 2020 and he's president for another four years, and then what happens if he loses? Where do you see the party going from here? Do they rebuild? Do they start renouncing uh, Donald Trump to try to stay relevant? What do you see happening here? And and where does Principles First fit into that? I mean, first of all, I think it's a million dollar question, right? For anyone who is a, a principled conservative, I think that's top of the mind, right? That's what, what do we go from here? What, what happens? And I do think, I think you're right to kind of pivot it off of whether Trump wins or loses. And I think in the first scenario, let's say Trump wins, it's darkest days. I mean, I mean, it's dark days right now for the conservative movement. I mean, there's not really anyone out there that are trumpeting that's, that's, you know, championing conservative principles. But if Trump wins, I think the conservative movement is going to have to ask itself which party really represents um, conservative principles. And there won't be a party at that time. And there won't be a party. And I think that, you know, you're already starting to see it. I mean, there's a lot of people in principles first um, who will come to our meetings and say, the Republican Party is dead. The Republican Party, as we knew it, as Ronald Reagan led it, as even, you know, President, both President Bush's led it, is no more. This is not a conservative party. It doesn't represent our principles. We need to stake out in a new direction and form our own party. And those conversations, I think, will heat up, um, if not before 2020, certainly after 2020, if Trump sort of solidifies his grip on the party. I hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> I hope that uh, I, I'm still I'm I'm still a Republican at the moment. I I'm sort of hopeful that this populist nationalist moment will pass, and we'll we'll kind of get back to a conversation about what it means to be a conservative because we're going to have to rebut whatever it is the Democrats plan on doing, and then the only way to rebut that is with sort of traditional conservative principles of limited government, um, fiscal responsibility, uh, and those types of things. But that's why I say if Trump wins, it's a pretty dire, dire consequence for the movement. If he loses, let's let's get switched to the bright side. If Trump loses uh, in 2020, I think that there will be a jockeying, as there always is. You know, there will be it'll be like this year's Democratic presidential race with the Bernie Sanders and the Warren crowd versus the Biden Klobuchar Buttigieg group. Who can lead that movement? 
I don't know. <laughs> I, I would argue that not very many people that are currently in power uh, could would have the credibility to lead a sort of wholesale redefinition of what it means to be a conservative, what it means to be a Republican after Donald Trump. I think it's going to be critical that the party sort of wipe the slate clean, but we'll see. I mean, there will be people making different arguments on that point. You know, you'll have Josh Hawley, you'll have uh, Justin Marco Amash. Rubio. Justin Amash could could make a good case that he could be a guy to completely sort of pivot the party in a completely different direction. And I, and I think that's why not only the sort of binary of whether Trump wins or loses is important, but by how much in either direction. You know, if Trump gets gets just um, destroyed, right, and we and Republicans lose the House and lose the Senate. Uh, do you not, see that as a possibility? I do see that as a possibility. I think anything is a possibility. I mean, a year is a lifetime right now in politics, and uh, anything can happen. I mean, if we could learn that, you know, uh, Trump was, you know, sold Erdogan a hotel in Turkey, and that's why he pulled out of Syria and let, let Erdogan come in and kill all the Kurds. You know, <laughs> who knows what we'll learn right. <laughs> in a year's time. But I think it is a possibility, and I think, look, I think... I think a lot of conservatives sort of overestimate Trump's popularity, um, you know, it, because of the way that Trump has sort of divided the country. People have divided into their camps, and so you you sort of, if you're a Trump supporter in, in East Texas, for instance, uh, you know, you kind of you go to church with Trump supporters, and and you, you right. affiliate with Trump supporters, and so the world to you looks like, oh, Trump's gonna. Trump's going to win this one in a landslide. No problem. Everybody I know really likes Trump. And then, you know, I travel around a lot for work, so I see sort of a spectrum of, of, of young professionals that I went to school with who are conservative, uh, principally conservative, that are just sort of sick of having to defend this intellectually, um, all the way to people who are just like, this guy is the bane of our existence. He's destroying the country. He's destroying everything that we believe in. Um, I, I can't stomach it anymore. So there's 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 certainly a range of views out there and intensity that are, are going to manifest themselves in some direction. And if you believe the polls, you you got to think he's going to lose. But again, the polls also said Hillary Clinton was going to win. So it's it's tough to trust what the polls are saying, particularly with the electoral college um, sort of. Uh, mediating just sort of an up or down vote by the, the by the people. You said you believe. Trump's popularity is overestimated. Does I I personally think he remains extremely popular in the Republican Party. I mean, poll after poll shows that, and I also believe he happens to be the favorite. Would you disagree with that? In the election, in, in the, the election, election, head, head -head election. I, I think. Look, I'm I am not a I'm not a prognosticator. I'm not very good at it. <laughs> right. um, I I because I, I think I get a lot of times. I it's hard. I think everybody does a little bit. They will describe their own views on, on what they'd like to see or what what they think is happening but uh, you know i think i think people overestimate his popularity uh, just because uh no one really talks about their concerns i talk to a lot of conservatives that come to these principles first meetings and, wow, i didn't really know that there were folks out there that thought like i do about trump you know i'm a concern i'm not going to vote for liz warren yeah but i don't really like all this stuff that trump's doing i mean he's not you know, I don't want my kid to act like like this, right? Uh, you know, I think Senator Lankford from Oklahoma was just just, just on the record just today as saying something like that. So I, I think that there's a lot of under-the-surface discontent with what this guy represents. Obviously, I mean, 
it's 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 above the surface on the Democratic side, but in the Republican side, I think it's sort of a silent, probably not a silent majority, but at least a silent plurality of folks who are like, yeah, this is a headache. I don't really know what to do because I don't want to. I don't want to sign up for Medicare for all, but there's no good way for me to register my dissent right now because it feels like at least on the surface, that everyone's just marching in line. So with, uh, in a head-to-head matchup, I think uh, with those possibly you know, discontented Republicans that you know, aren't liberal and don't want to see liberal policies, do they hold their nose and cast a ballot for Donald Trump because all of his flaws are baked in? I, it's hard to know. You know it, it's, I think that depends on the opponent. So it, certain yeah. opponents... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you get a moderate uh, Democrat, I think... You know, Trump's value goes down. If you get a far left Democrat somehow win, then I think you're going to see people hold their nose and vote for Trump. Yeah, I mean that that is that is right. I I think that could happen. Right that 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 logic makes sense to me. The the logic of Trump just being too far afield of what people would be willing to actually pull the lever for also made sense for me in 2016. I thought he was a terrible candidate. I thought he had no shot. But then it turned out that people were just looking to shake it, shake things up, and they well, really I mean, didn't care about some of that stuff. You also had Hillary Clinton, right. who, who's basically the Democrat version of Trump with more scandal, more stuff in That's the true. closet and stuff. So she had, she was the worst candidate possible for them to run against Trump because she can't really point a finger at any of this shady stuff Trump was doing. And her, po- her popularity is in the tank anyway. Oh, right. yeah. She was the worst candidate possible. And so everyone's like, oh, you know, like, how could that have happened back then? I'm like, well, yeah, you ran Hillary Clinton. Clinton. <laughs> right, exactly. And exactly. I, would, I would tend to agree with that. I mean, I, you know, even into Election Day, I actually didn't think Donald Trump was going to win. I, I, you know, went to bed that night have, after having him be declared president-elect in shock. I don't know about you, but I was in <laughs> complete shock because the polls suggested he wasn't going to win. But, but uh, you know, Hillary Clinton's unpopularity, I guess, wasn't being captured in those polls. So, um, the rate, the 2020 election is interesting to me. I, I you know, I think Trump's a favorite, but a slight favorite, um, because especially if the economy remains strong, if people are looking at their 401ks, people are like, okay, I've got a job, economy's better than it has been. Um, you know, I think that bodes to Trump's advantage and makes him possibly the favorite. But certainly, in the event that he loses, you you mentioned that you think there'll be kind of a reconvening or a jockeying of people, you know, trying to to define themselves as as the future conservative leader. Um, you know, there's any number of people that that could, um, you know, that could assume that that role. But, you know, do we lose all our credibility at that point, even if he loses? Because, you know, we didn't do anything until he lost. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's why that's why I think it's important that the future of the conservative movement be driven not by some brand of some person, right? Looking for this perfect concoction of who has you know, who checks all the boxes and who's a leader that we can put our faith in and focuses much more on the grassroots. I think it should be driven by the grassroots and grassroots conversations about what the principles are that define conservatism and then hold the leaders accountable to those principles, right? And and so that- Can you talk about some of those principles? Yeah, so that's, that's, that's what Principles First has sort of done since last February or March is have these conversations across the country. We've had about 30 meetups. And in August or September, we basically brought all the ideas that 
folks had, had come up with, and we put together a declaration of principles, which are about 15 um, pretty succinct statements of just concepts, you know, character and integrity matter is one of them, you know, freedom uh, is better than coercion, right? Like there a set of 15 principles, you know, the United, another one is that the United States role in the world is unique and important. Um, you know, it's not a full, it's not a full, um, policy prescription because the policies are different than principles, but they're sort of fundamental tenets that we commit ourselves to that we say, okay, we can, we can, we can have shades of gray with respect to the policies and, and, and how, which policies these principles actually kind of are, are effectuating, but let's agree on the principles and let's not compromise on these things because I think we have over the past two or three years to a point of where we don't even know what the principles are anymore. Um, so that's what we've done. And I think those conversations should, because look, there might be Republicans out there that disagree with our principles and that's, that's good. If we at least we're talking about the principles at that point. Right. And, and not and talking can, about a person. Yes. We're not talking about a person. We're not asking to determine what does conservatism mean? It was, Oh, did Trump do that? If Trump did it, or if the Senate GOB did it, then that's what it means to be a conservative. And if you don't support that, well then you're just, you get out of town because you're not, you're not, you must be a rhino or you must not be a conservative because you're not wearing a red hat. Yeah, that you're, just you're me, not patriotic. Yeah. Anymore. You're not patriotic. <laughs> patriotic and that's what yeah they're even it's even become this idea of if you're not on board with the person you're not supporting the country because you're not supporting the president and, that and is i actually just, think that's dangerous that is dangerous that has never been that has never been the except for maybe the alien and sedition acts at one right. point around the founding it's not really even who america is at all right america is all about disagreement dissent a melting pot you know, we do commit ourselves to certain fundamental principles, but we don't commit ourselves to to, to just full sale political support of every policy that that the president comes up with just because he's the president, um, right? And so that to me is concerning, not just for the Republican Party, but as you mentioned, like for the entire for our, the the strength of our country. And you know, this is one of my hobby horses, but I think that our enemies are starting to realize that that is the thread that they can pull to unravel this experiment. When we can't agree on basic truth and fundamental principles and we accuse each other of, you know, disloyalty and unpatriotism, if you don't sort of just make excuses for the president, then, then people are going to come in, the Russians, whoever, the, the China, China, they're going to come in, they're going to infiltrate our social media, they're going to come into our news feeds with links to their own so, propaganda so sites. So Discord confuse us. Uh, you know, it, you know. I think I, I was I saw I read something the other day that the KGB tactic in the night the 1980s when they were trying to basically infiltrate satellite states and make them communist was to er first erode truth. If you can erode objective truth, you can really start to. Um, disengage and uproot democratic norms and institutions because the whole idea is this sort of J.S. Mill, uh, John Stuart Mill, liberalist idea of the marketplace of ideas. That if we just let people talk about it and debate and vote, the best ideas will rise to the top, right? Because whatever persuades us through logic and rationality will sort of elevate itself. Well, if we don't have the glue that binds that marketplace and that, that really assigns value to ideas in a rational way, 
then the ideas that come to the top are just the loudest. They're the meanest. They're the ones that resonate with our emotions. And that, I think, is what our enemies are exploiting. And if we don't recognize that as a people and fight back against it and speak to each other face to face, (laughs) we're going to, we're going to continue to fall into this trap of, you know, letting others manipulate and influence our elections, our government, and steer policy in ways that are unhealthy for the United States. Well, you're actually seeing that right now when you see, you know, United States senators come on television and repeat talking points of the Russian government, that it wasn't the Russians that that interfered in our elections, that it was actually Ukraine when there's actually zero evidence of that. Our intelligence communities that do this for a living, that are paid to be on the ground and know these things, have no evidence of that. In fact, it's all the opposite direction. And look, I don't think, here's the problem. I don't think that the senators think and intend to spread it's Russian not malicious, propaganda. Right. It's not malicious. That's the problem. They don't, you, it's, become, it's become so synonymous in our discourse that it's just another argument to make, right? If they, they just think, well, this is, this is they, they're looking at polls and they're saying, oh, well, this is what 70% of the Republican Party believes, so I'm, this is what I can say. And that's what I mean. That's what that's what thing, that's what Putin does all the time in Russia, right? I mean, he just kind of comes didn't out. Didn't he say says, the other day? We I'm didn't. Glad we the didn't, pressure's not on us now. Yeah, the pressure's not on us. Or like you know, you ask him about the invasion. We didn't invade. We don't have troops in Crimea. We <laughs> we didn't kill anyone in Crimea. It's just basic denial of just basic of denial facts. of truth. And it go and that's how it works. That's how strong men stay in power. I mean, if you go ask him, Jong Un, he's going to say, "Oh, we have the best economy." Uh, in 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 the in the world, we're the strongest country in the world, and meanwhile, his his people are starving in in huts in North Korea, right? I mean, that's what they just deny the objective truths that are inconvenient to their power, um, and and that I fear is is if if we don't get back to basic truth and objective rationality, we risk we run the risk of really eroding some of the democratic institutions that have been the great experiment of the United States and our constitution. So I want to challenge you a little bit on, um, on, uh, the, the day after the election. So you mentioned that, uh, um, for our movement, it would be better for Donald Trump to lose, but Donald Trump losing means the Democrat has won, right? The, the, the candidate that, that has principles and policy ideas that we disagree with has won. Does that put us at a disadvantage because now that person is in power and, Maybe those things that happen that they that the policies that they propose maybe they are detrimental to the economy maybe they do put us in a worse position um, you know how do we combat that so I guess what I'm trying to say is um, because things are going well in terms of the economy and and you know people are working and wages are rising and the stock market is doing well does that not necessitate Trump staying in office at all until we can get a different Republican in power yeah I mean look. There's no question that if a Democrat is elected, and particularly if that Democrat is Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, that that's going to set back the conservative movement. It's going to be harmful to the conservative movement either way. I mean, it's sort of a, you know, Trump wins, the conservative movement is probably, you know, over with respect to the Republican Party or set back tremendously. If a Democrat wins, then some of the conservative gains or, you mean, the very few are going, you know, it's not going to be a conservative appointing judges, right? So there's some just fundamental truths about that. But I think, you know, the conservative movement can only really open up the conversation and define itself. Once it's gone? I I think so, right? Once, once, 
once his grip on the party has loosened, right? Because right now, politics is dictated by, am I going to get a mean tweet about me if I step out of line and dissent? So there is no dissent. There's no dissent because this guy runs the Republican Party like a mob boss. Is that why more politicians don't speak out? Because if you listen to people like Anthony Scaramucci, for example, he says that that there's a lot of people that feel the same way that he does um, in terms of wanting Trump to be gone, but they're too afraid to say anything. There, there was another senator, I can't remember who said it, but that said if the, the impeachment vote was a blind vote, then two-thirds of Republicans would, would <laughs> vote to oust him. Do you think that's true? Do you I think, think that's absolutely true. I just, I just watched over the Christmas break um, that the new Netflix, the Scorsese Irishman film. Sure, that was, I, I, that's on my that list. That was exactly how this, you know, the Teamsters Union operated under Hoffa. Nobody liked the guy. Nobody, you know, everybody disagreed with him, but nobody said anything out loud because, <laughs> you know, they, they'd wind up in a ditch. Now, I'm not saying Trump's going to make folks wind up in ditches, but Trump's going to mean tweet and your career is going to be in the ditch if you say anything bad about the guy. But, that yeah, but just, as a collective group, don't the Republican Party, doesn't, doesn't the U.S. Senate or the, the, the GOP and the House have more power collectively than Donald Trump? Or do you think they risk backlash among their voters? It's, I think it's a good question. I mean, it's it's the, chicken the, or the egg, right? You know, they've been so spineless, though, because they, there is some evidence that Trump does respond when they stand up to principles and hold them accountable, and then and then they just haven't had the appetite or the the balls to do it. Uh, it I mean, there were several times where he said something and someone or you know everyone responded, and then he backed off of it and changed it. But you don't see it happen anymore, and I don't know why. Like Lindsey Graham in the beginning. Did it a little bit, but he is just totally just falling in line, and I guess it's fear. Well, he's up know? for reelection, and they did it with the they did it with Syria and the Kurds. He 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 announced that withdrawal of the Kurds, and he was out of there for ten days. And then Lindsey Graham, all these people piped up and said, "Okay, now I can't. I don't know about. I can't yeah. defend this. This is outrageous." And twelve days later. There were back troops on the ground, and he sort yeah. of kind of smudged over it and didn't want to really say that he backtracked, but he clearly did. But he did, sure. So I, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. There is power in numbers. If the Senate GOP, and, and unfortunately, I think it'd have to be the right people. It'd have to be Lindsey Graham, people who are sort of so closely, because if it's Mitt Romney and Susan Collins, they're going to be labeled just, rhinos. They're going to be labeled rhinos. Trump's going to tweet about them and he's going to make a video with Mitt Romney's head on a chicken or something. <laughs> and that's going to be, <laughs> that's going to be that. Right. Um, and so that's the challenge. That's the, that's the challenge. And, and unfortunately I think there's got to be a chink in Trump's armor in order to embolden people to start to think about the future, think about defining their own path, think about the ideas again. Um, and that's the conversation I think we're trying to jumpstart uh, with principles first. And you have an, uh, an upcoming event that you're planning, uh, with, which will be a large gathering of principles first, or, or principled conservatives. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So we are, uh, we, we, we haven't finalized the exact location. We know it'll be in D.C. at the end of February. I think Saturday, February 29th, it'll be a day-long sort of summit. Um, um, in, in February, co coincide to run along CPAC again as a sort of a counterpoint. But it's just basically going to be a chance because I feel like looking across the landscape of the right, there hasn't really been a gathering of sort of the principled conservative lane. Um, you had that national conservative conference with, with people that are trying to talk about nationalism, and I don't think that's 
it's obviously not the only argument for the the direction of conservatism, the way that it can go. So the idea is hopefully to bring around, bring together, for you know, a day's worth of panels of speakers to come together who are in the principled conservative lane with grassroots activists, so that people can get in a room, talk about these things, and realize, hey, there are people out here who are frustrated. There are people that share your views that this isn't conservatism. That conservative means something different um, and hopefully to start to define it for in the event that he loses what comes next because I think if nothing is there then it's going to kind of be ashes Sure, absolutely. <laughs> if, if he loses um, in 2020 if he loses though I don't think it's game over because right. when's, the, when's the last time we had a balanced budget that was Newt Gingrich under Bill Clinton under Bill Clinton right, right? it's divided power so, I I mean, I feel like there's almost a more a, a bigger chance of them fighting for their principles when the other side is at in the power. Head. Yeah. Right. And so then everyone sticks to their guns and rallies together and fights for the principles. And Newt Gingrich got a balanced budget under Clinton, which was a very progressive left candidate at the time. So, it, you know, and. and all rights, you know, you would think the spending would have gone through the roof then, but it didn't mm-hmm. because Newt rallied the Republicans. And, and so I, that's my hope yeah. is that you'll see some movement like that where it's like, OK, we 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 let our principles take, uh, you know, the back burner for too long. Let's get back to our principles. But that would be my hope. But I, I don't know that there's the leader like Newt in there to take that up. Right. The Actually, that's probably the only thing that can happen is Republic, if, if the Republican Party is going to survive and ever ascend into power again, if Trump loses, then they have to own it, uh, own the last several years. Um, you know, we've abandoned our principles. This is what we stand for. Um, here's actually what we stand for. And moving forward, we're going we're gonna to adhere to these principles and we're not going to veer from those. That's the way I would see it. That's the way I see it. <laughs> I hope that's I hope that's the way it goes. We're gonna we're gonna continue to organize. You know, I have a full time full time job. I'm trying not to get fired from from while I organize all of this. So I, I hope hope they continue to adopt a sort of a don't ask, don't tell, <laughs> don't tell approach to, to my political activism. But we're sure. gonna we're gonna continue to do this and continue to have these conversations. I find it tremendously you know, just personally rewarding and would probably do this even if there wasn't an organization. I love conversations like this, uh, meeting new people and talking about this because I think it is such a critical moment for the country. Um, And as I sit here at, you know, about to be 30 and look up over the next 20 years, I'm like, where are we going to be? You know, is is this, are we going to be in a world sort of where, China is the ascendant global power and we're sort of in a back seat trying to figure out the kinks of liberal democracy. Are we going to shun liberal democracy altogether um, and and sort of descend into this quagmire of untruths and propaganda? I think it's an open question, right? Where as I, you know, I haven't really ever felt this way about the country until, until now, I mean, not that old, but um, uh, I'm, I'm sure, and I'm sure there have been similar moments in our past where folks kind of caught their breath and uh, were like, "Where are we headed?" Um, but so this I is really a watershed that, moment. I do. I mean, I think it's. I think it was a water watershed decade. I, I read an interesting article because there's a whole host of articles coming out around the new year around the decade. You know, looking back at the decade of the 2010s, situating it in the you know the big arc of 
the United States and just humanity. Um, and, and there was one by Ross Douthat, or I think Douthat, Douthat, um, in the, he's a conservative commentator for the New York Times, and he labeled uh, the 2010s as sort of the, the era of the, the gods of the copybook headings where rationality was coming home to roost. Because if you look at the 2010s, there wasn't really a lot of disruption in terms of like concrete things. You know, it was a period of economic growth. All of the metrics were on the up. It, you know, there wasn't a lot of disruptions like you saw in the 2000s where you had a massive war. You had, the, you know, the biggest attack on our home soil since, you know, Pearl Harbor or something like that. I mean, the biggest ever with, with 9-11. There were things that you would think would have just been so momentous and earth shattering. But when we think about it, we would think between us that 2010s were this fraught moment where everyone is disillusioned about the state of the country. We're more divided than we've ever been. And he thinks that it's because we're wrestling with all of the changes that were wrought in, two, in the 2000s. And we got overconfident in the 90s. We had the wake-up call in, in, the, in, the, in the 2000s. And then now in 2010, we, we can't really figure it out where we are. And, and um, so we'll see. But I, I, do think, I do think the past 10 years and the past four years in particular have sort of been a, a moment of reckoning. And, and, and we're going to have to make a choice in 2020 and in the coming years about who we are as a country. I mean, are we going to, because f- I don't think liberal democracy just comes easy. I think it's a fight. It's a struggle. We have to commit to, we have to commit to make it work in order for it to work. Um, and if we don't, if we're just sort of content to set aside truth and objectivity, just so our side wins the election or, you know, we stick it to our opponents, then, you know, authoritarianism is going to start to look pretty good for strong men around the world, right? Our liberal values are not going to resonate as strongly if folks like Kim Jong-un and Putin can point to the United States and, well, hey, you guys aren't doing so hot yourselves. So right. don't, be com- don't be complaining about my, <laughs> you know, gulags when, when you guys got your own problems. And that is what I fundamentally just hate. Sure, I, absolutely. I hate that as an American because I think we are unique. I think we are exceptional. I think liberal democracy is the best form of government that man has ever known. And right now... But it has to be nurtured. It has to be nurtured and it has to be committed to. And right now we just aren't putting up the results, I guess is what I would say. It does, it's not looking good. Sure. Um, so anyways, it's, leave you with that happy thought. <laughs> absolutely. Well, uh, I'll, I'll wrap this up. Uh, Heath and Josh were saying, I've enjoyed the conversation. I'm glad you've, you know, come, come in to, to hang out with us and talk to us about this and, um, keep us updated on any of the, the happenings with principles first. And, uh, we'd love to have you back on maybe, um, as the election draws closer to see where to kind of handicap things. And even after the election to kind of discuss the roadmap forward. So sure. thanks again for coming in. Thank you. This was great. Yeah. Appreciate it.